0: Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life.
1: Balance. We balance when we walk, ride a bicycle, ski. We can even live a balanced lifestyle. Well, at Foster and Motley, a balanced portfolio is key to good investing and there are times that portfolio must be rebalanced ryan english and nicholas roth are here to talk about that process i'm patrice Sakura, and uh, who wants to take a definition give me a definition of rebalancing
2: yeah patrice from a high level rebalancing is the trading of assets within a portfolio once specific stock or bond targets are established it's the buying and selling of those assets to bring them back in line with the original target
1: well ryan when is that target set how do you define that
2: (laughs) that target is generally set at the beginning of a a process where a client joins uh, the firm joins foster motley where we evaluate uh their different their risk tolerance their ages the size of their portfolio, how much is needed from the portfolio. And we set the targets generally at the beginning of of that process.
1: Uh, Do you have an overall type of philosophy when you're looking at these portfolio construction projects?
2: It's consistent across clients generally. The customization occurs with the actual mix in terms of what those targets will be but the process is consistent across all clients and, and generally just, it's customized to their specific situation.
1: Okay. What then, you've got these portfolios set up, they've been balanced, they look pretty, they're nice, little blue ribbons on them or red ribbons, whatever people like. When would you go into to change things and, and what would trigger something like that?
2: Well, we use two methods of rebalancing. You know, One is a time-based method where you're on a specific or a structured, a schedule per se, of when the portfolio will be rebalanced. Um, That could be every month, that could be every two months, or that could be every quarter. Uh, So that is a component of rebalancing. And Nick, do you want to discuss a little bit more about the time-based rebalancing? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. We
3: handle most of our accounts, client accounts, on the monthly, every other month, or quarterly rebalancing schedule that, that Ryan mentioned. But we used to offer a six-month rebalancing time horizon uh, to clients as part of a historical service that we used to offer. And that's something that we've moved away from, Patrice. And we've moved away from that because that's just too much time in between rebalances to adequately. Um, capture the movements that are happening in the stock market. You know, we we saw in March of 2020 with COVID, the, the market dropped 30% and then recovered almost that entire loss within a three or four month time horizon. So if if you would have rebalanced prior to March of 2020, say February of 2020 and then not looked at your portfolio again until say July or August you would have missed the vast majority of that downturn and and then rebound. rebound. So we've moved towards a more frequent approach to rebalancing because of those risk factors that exist in the market.
2: Yeah, and what Nick is really describing is deviation-based rebalancing, which is what we utilize, where we have our portfolios and our software and when there's fluctuations in the different asset classes, say stocks, we there's triggers that the portfolio needs to be rebalanced. So if, if stocks are overweight, say 5%, um, that will generate a trigger where that portfolio needs to be uh, traded to reduce the stock allocation. And of course, it works, as Nick described, in periods of very volatile markets when the market is down substantially.
3: And, and just to be clear, Patrice, we're using both of these types of rebalancing in order to best service our clients' accounts. Um, The the deviation-based makes sure that we capture quick movements in the market, but we're also not ignoring client portfolios for months on end. We're making sure that we are always looking at portfolios on some specific time basis, and then there's the deviation basis added on top of that in case there are quick movements in the
1: market. All right. Tell me about the different types of rebalances you do
2: so there's two I would say general types of rebalances and the first would be a static rebalance and it really refers to targets are the targets static so an in investment policy statement when you set a target of 60% stocks that is a static target you always rebalance to the 60% but say within domestic stocks there's another type of rebalance, and that's dynamic rebalancing. Whereas the sector weighting in the market for, say, the technology sector, it can float, right? As investors pay more for technology stocks relative to, say, energy stocks, the weighting of technology is is increased, relatively speaking. So in that case, it's more of a a dynamic rebalance where you're, you're rebalancing, but you're doing it with floating targets.
3: And, and we've seen the sector weights change drastically over the years. Um, you know, In the last 20 years, technology stocks have grown significantly to be a sig- significant part of the overall economy and energy stocks have relatively shrunk. So that's why those parts of the rebalancing process need to be dynamic because the economy and, and the makeup of the economy changes over time.
1: Hmm. All right. Do you do this within a, a portfolio, or do you do it for the entire portfolio?
2: We generally do it for the entire portfolio, which I think could be best described as like a household for a private client, because they're going to have most likely several different account types, a taxable account, an IRA, a Roth IRA. You know, those are the typical mix. So when you own assets, different assets in each of the different accounts, You've got to rebalance to make the whole picture the whole household in line with the target you want. And that's a little bit trickier when managing, say, capital gains and where you place certain assets to get your most after-tax bang for your buck. But we look at it from a household perspective when we rebalance.
3: And, and we rebalance across the household because of asset location. And we've talked about that a little bit in previous podcasts, but making sure that we get the best type of asset in the right type of account means that each account shouldn't look the same. And that's why we're looking at it in aggregate instead of on an account-by-account basis.
1: Now, Ryan, I think you mentioned earlier software. Tell me how you use software to help you do this.
2: Yes, so software is a big aid, a big help in rebalancing accounts. You know, otherwise, if you didn't have the software, it'd be a lot of manual calculation, maybe some spreadsheet analysis, but our software can help tell us what needs to be traded uh, a lot quicker, uh, especially when, you know, markets are moving. So, you know, across client accounts that really helps us in, in doing our daily jobs.
1: Do clients understand what's going on here? Do they care?
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think they they understand that rebalancing is a very important part of investment management. Uh, it it has shown uh, over history to add value. In fact, Vanguard did a study in I think 2016 about advisor alpha, how advisors add alpha, and one of the things that they pointed to was rebalancing. Um, they they characterize it as I think a 0.35, 35 basis point on average relative to the average investor experience increase in value or alpha on an annualized basis.
3: And, and I'll just add Patrice that the key to rebalancing is that it helps remove emotion from the, the entire process, right? And, and that's why individuals can be so bad at managing their own portfolios, right? And, and why some people struggle to manage their own wealth is because it's so emotional and money becomes so emotional for people. But, you know, we're emotional too, right? If we think that a stock looks good, then we're going to be more inclined to hold that stock, right? But if we have this disciplined rebalancing process, it helps us remove emotion from managing clients' portfolios as well when there's this disciplined process.
1: What are the... Well, obviously, we've seen some benefits to, to rebalancing. Of course, it's going to make a for a better portfolio, we would hope, better results. But, but talk to me some more about that.
2: Yeah, and one of the reasons I think deviation rebalancing is, has been able to gain more frequent usage is the fact that transaction costs have come down substantially over time. As far as a stock trade or an ETF trade, I mean, those are free. Uh, mutual fund trades, their trading costs are very low. Uh, so, the actual explicit trading costs to buy and sell things is a lot cheaper than it was, which allows you to trade more frequently. Uh, so, that helps with the deviation rebalancing aspect um, in targeting that. There are other implicit costs to trading, though. I mean, a bid, ask, spread, you know, you generally have to cross that when you're buying or selling something. So, there is a cost that you don't see explicitly, but it's there so that's another consideration about well how much how much trading is appropriate for rebalancing and in highly liquid blue chip stocks the the cost is not very much you know something like an individual bond that cost is substantially higher potentially because you have to solicit um, bids and offers and you know it's what another investor is willing to pay for that and You know, choosing to transact that individual bond is based on your interpretation of fair value, too. So,
1: Does it take longer to rebalance a bond portfolio?
2: It does generally take longer. And so we utilize what we call liquidity positions for the different bond sectors. And those are highly liquid ETFs, typically within a particular bond category, that we're able to trade quickly. Now, the majority of that bond position will generally be individual bonds, but holding the ETFs allow us to make moves quicker, and then we can take a little bit more time in selling the individual bonds to make those changes within client portfolios.
1: All right. Talk to me about mutual funds then.
2: Nick, do you want to take that one?
1: Yeah, so
3: I think the the key thing to realize here is that not all mutual funds are built in the same way. Most mutual funds, in fact, uh, even have different classes within the same mutual fund. Um, and, and the key when we're evaluating mutual funds is um, that it's part of our job as fiduciaries to select the best, best class of mutual funds for our clients. And that typically as a a first kind of thing we look at is are there loads in the mutual funds? And a load is just an upfront cost to purchase the mutual fund that doesn't go to Schwab as the person doing the transaction. It goes to the mutual fund manager for offering this this fund and and it's part of their revenue stream. Um, So whenever we're picking a mutual fund for a client, we avoid any mutual funds that would include a load that would, in theory, uh, make the transaction cost uh, of rebalancing higher.
1: And you don't have to have a a rounded amount of anything anymore when you're trading, correct? You can do odd lots of things.
3: Absolutely, Patrice. And, And that's been the best part for new young investors coming into the market is, you know, you don't need to be able to afford 100 shares of any stock anymore. You can just go buy one share and, and then you've started investing. And, and that's been a really good, good thing for the little guy in this new market environment.
1: I love the fact too, in some cases, you can buy a partial share, can you?
3: you can uh, there are some rules uh, that Schwab has made that maybe a little more difficult than they lead on but it, it is possible if, if you'd like to go that route all
1: right what about you what about using uh, what you've invested and how you're rebalancing to help with taxes
3: this is really where a financial planner can help get involved in what is mainly an investment manager's responsibility and it's just another example where having two dedicated bid dedicated professionals can be a big win for clients. Earlier, Ryan mentioned managing capital gains, and we do that by having capital gains budgets for certain clients where appropriate. In the detailed tax planning that our team does, in some clients' circumstances, this budget is is more important than others, depending on how close to certain brackets a client may or may not be. And that budget really comes into play every time that the investment team looks to rebalance the portfolio. If we set a capital gains budget for a client uh, let's say, $25,000, then the investment manager can be very comfortable taking gains up to, say, $20,000. And as they get closer and closer to that target throughout the year, then they can determine how much in gains they need to take, right? If they, get, if they never get close to that number, then great, no harm, no foul. But especially in particularly good years in the stock market, we may be trimming positions that have done well. And in turn, that means realizing a lot of gains throughout the year. So as the year goes on, the investment managers start to approach or even in some cases exceed these budgets that we've set. And we have a strategy in order to mitigate that called tax loss harvesting. And tax loss harvesting is a method that investment managers can use in order to reduce the amount of capital gains that they've realized throughout the year. Tax loss harvesting involves intentionally choosing to sell an investment that has lost money in order to offset gains realized from other investments or to offset ordinary income earned by individuals. And the IRS allows individuals to offset up to $3,000 a year of ordinary income with their investment losses. Now, obviously locking in losses isn't an ideal investment strategy, so investment managers use these trades and the subsequent cash that they generate to rebalance the portfolio into other investments that realign to the targets that we've discussed throughout the episode.
1: All right, this sounds like a prudent strategy. I mean, who wouldn't want to pay less in taxes, right? But are there any pitfalls that should be avoided when executing this strategy?
3: Great question, Patrice. Um, There is one thing that investment managers do need to consider when executing this strategy, and that is that the IRS has stated that it's against the rules to sell and repurchase what they define as a substantially identical stock or security, or else the transaction will fall under the wash sale rules, uh, and you wouldn't be able to count that loss uh, as a loss on your taxes. Um, and in fact, you're not allowed to repurchase a substantially identical security for the following 30 days without triggering these rules.
1: All right. Ryan, talk to me about liquid versus illiquid investments. Which is easier to deal with?
2: Liquid investments are much easier to deal with in rebalancing. Real estate is is a good example of an asset class that typically has both liquid and illiquid types of investments in a client portfolio. So when you think about the illiquid investments, I mean, that could be an apartment building or an investment in a a portfolio of apartment buildings where the transaction costs and the timing, the ability to sell that is difficult to do very quickly. So the reason of course you invest in something like that is because you can gain an illiquidity premium or an extra return for locking up your money for longer. But the trade-off is you're not able to rebalance as easily in volatile times. But the way we approach that is we don't want all of our eggs in an illiquid basket. We would like a component or percentage of that allocation to be in a liquid form so we're able to trade in and out of it when we need to.
1: And how do you do that?
2: We trade the publicly traded real estates generally if they are out of line.
3: Well, and just to add one thing to that, Patrice, is each of our investment policy statements that we mentioned earlier specifically states how much or how many, I should say, illiquid investments as a percentage of each client portfolio can be illiquid. Uh, so let's say I think our standard is 15% of a client portfolio can be illiquid at any given time. Uh, but the vast majority of the time, we're well below that limit.
2: And there's the opportunity. I mean, if if the illiquid investments have held up better in a difficult environment, but we're not able to sell them and say, we do see a lot more value in the real estate asset class, but we can always adjust the investment policy statement to increase the allocation. So there are other options if a client does have a heavier illiquid allocation that's not able to be adjusted as easily. All
1: right. Diversification. Now I know a portfolio is diversified, but talk to me about this one asset class and you don't want it to get too big.
3: This is uh partially back to the the deviation-based rebalancing model is that the goal of all of this is to never let your portfolio grow too much in one area so that your risk is too concentrated in one part of the market. You know, the biggest companies in the world don't tend to stay the biggest companies in the world forever. So you don't really want to be investing in Apple for for example, which has done extremely well over the last 20 years, but you don't want to let that position continue to grow and grow and be a significant portion of your overall investments, right? Because from what we've learned over the course of history is that there's going to be another company that is more innovative and, and will perform better than Apple in the long run. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be in three years, but Eventually, somebody's going to come along and, and kind of take that that spot away from whichever company is is leading the market. So, we we never want to let our investments in one asset class, or one asset or one asset class, even um, grow too big, uh, so that a client would have concentrated risk in any one area.
2: Yeah, if you look at the original Dow Jones index, there are no companies that. It- that are still in that today. So things change. I mean, our our job is to diversify client portfolios. We don't want the the client to take an extreme amount of business model risk, individual business model risk, even though that company is looking very strong at the time in their portfolio for what they are going to need um, to live off of in retirement. So that's the whole premise of diversification. and so when they client when the client has a concentrated position like that's a in Cincinnati Procter and Gamble is a, is a very common concentrated position for our you know our clients given that it has done so well you know, we have to take the PNG position, which is in an unmanaged account into consideration when we're looking at the rest of the portfolio. And are we overexposed to domestic stocks? Because we have this PNG allocation in unmanaged account, we we look at the whole picture for the client when we're rebalancing.
1: All right, I can see PNG also being a rather emotional stock to hold for many people, and uh, getting them to relinquish that could be a little difficult.
3: A lot of times, Patrice, we'll bring it up to clients, and they'll say, "No way, are you touching my PNG stock?" <laughs> and it's our job to let them know you know we're advisors we're we're not telling anybody what to do here we're advising people on what we think is best for them but if, if they don't want us to touch their png we're not going to touch it
1: all right gentlemen how can people reach you if they've got questions
2: the best way is probably to go to our website at com. we've got some good information on there a lot of our insights articles our thoughts are are on there and you can learn a lot more about Foster & Motley on our site.
1: All right. Ryan English, Nick Roth, thank you so much. For the latest episode of Foster & Motley's podcast about life and wealth, follow and please share with others. I'm Patrice Sakura, and let's talk again later.
0: Thank you for listening to Foster & Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster & Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.